Coming up on this edition of the Golf Digest podcast, we discuss breakout star Aaron Wise, breakout golf course Trinity Forest, and have a talk with legendary author John Feinstein. Welcome back to the Golf Digest podcast. I'm Alex Myers, and today I'm joined by Sam Wyman in studio and Keely Levins via Skype. Keely, Sam, how's it going? I think technically Excellent. she's on FaceTime just FaceTime? to make sure oh, we get our podcast correctly. I yes. don't do technology yeah, very so. well. Um, <laughs> from the great state of Connecticut. It's yeah. beautiful out here today. <laughs> Probably someone who does do technology pretty well is 21-year-old Aaron Wise, who picked up his first PGA Tour win at the AT&T Byron Nelson Sam, your first impressions of this guy, or maybe they're not your first impression. He's well, kind I mean, of a I think it's star. close to my first impressions. It's funny, like he had a pretty good week at the Wells Fargo, and you know, you always hear these guys do to win anytime soon. He's a breakout star, but to be able to do that, especially kind of knowing that and suddenly convert uh, so quickly soon after, is really impressive. I mean, everyone you talk to says this guy's a real deal. You know, he was kind of one and two with John Rahm when they were both amateurs, which is uh, you know pretty pretty mm-hmm. impressive in its own right. So. Um, you, you know, he's another one of those guys that is built to do great things and is kind of ahead of his time. And we kind of, you know, everyone expected Spieth to be, uh, you know, a star, but we didn't necessarily expect him to be a star so quickly. Well, obviously, it's just the age is getting younger and younger for guys to be impact performers. Yeah, yeah this is yeah. this is what I love about how many incredible young players there are right now is our focus is spread so thin that there are really, really good players that just seem to pop up out of nowhere. You know, they're able to develop their games without this scrutiny and this pressure of, oh, when's he going to win? When's it going to happen? And then they just, they're able to do their thing. And then they just appear and everyone's, you know, at least who don't know them very well are shocked. And then you start looking back and you're like, wow, no, this is a great player who could end up having an incredible career on tour. But I would would argue that the scrutiny is kind of different now because – we're, now we're talking about guys who have success very early on, and we saw it with Spieth, and they suddenly set this precedent where that's mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do on a regular basis, and they're not afforded the sort of growing pains of a year on tour in which they're sort of learning their way and, and you know trying to compete. Now they've, now they've won. Now everyone's calling him a future star, and now you're expected to, to sort of replicate that on a weekly basis. I don't want to project all this on Aaron Wise, but that does seem to happen more now than ever before. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so many guys who are under 25 who are not just, you know, uh, yeah, it used to be, oh, they're really good for under 25. Now mm-hmm. they're the best players in the world, right. Justin Thomas, Jordan Speed, John Rahm. I mean, they're literally all in the top five. Uh, you know, we saw Rory McIlroy win four majors by age 26 or whatever. I mean, you know, so we've – We've seen these guys. You're right. The, the the bar has changed. The expectations have changed. But it's funny because, you know, Aaron Wise wins the NCAA title. Just a, last week or the week before, we were talking about another recent NCAA winner, John Peterson. World was mm-hmm. expected of him. He might retire from right, golf right. before he's 30. So it just shows you that, like, to both to Keeley's point and to Sam's point, that there's a ton of great players out there. But even if you reach the top at a certain level – you st- to do it on the PGA Tour is a whole nother level. Right. You, you have to keep improving, keep working. Um, and be, yeah. you know, kind of impervious to sure. criticism and lulls. I mean, like everyone's going to have a lull in their career. It's kind of how they manage it. That's the, that's the real difficult part. Um, you know, Aaron Wise, you mentioned a couple weeks back, the runner-up to Jason Day at Wells Fargo. 
I think that really was kind of telling. He, if you remember, he had those two incredible up and downs mm-hmm. at the end to, to mm-hmm. finish second place. But at the time, he was tied for the lead, and it only took Jason Day birdieing, you know, two of the green mile holes, uh, hitting the flagstick on 17. That's the only reason why Aaron Wise didn't win a couple weeks ago. So, you know, to, to nearly have two wins, um, you mentioned, right, I mean, he was there the whole weekend. He played in the final group both the last two days. Obviously, this was not the best field. We talked about this coming in. But, you know, any win on the PGA Tour is certainly an impressive feat, especially at 21. Absolutely. And getting those reps in of finishing off a tournament. I right, think we right. talk about that a lot. And his coach talked about that too, that this kid knows how to win. And like you said, those clutch up and downs at the Wells Fargo and then being able to actually maintain his momentum through the finish of this tournament. I think that those are sure it wasn't a strong field, but those are huge milestones for a young We're player. trying to get him, by the way, as a guest. Yeah. Um, Probably within the next day or so. So let's let's remind him of how weak the field was when, he, when <laughs> just, Sorry, just to be sure. Yeah. Hey, great really win for count. a like B-level event. It's like but... a half win. Yeah. Let's be honest. No, no, we're just kidding. We, of course. Um, you know, you mentioned his instructor, uh, his instructor, and I know who his instructor is now because of Mike Francesa of all people <laughs> tweeted about him. And there's what? absolutely no way Mike Francesa, who just joined Twitter, is tweeting about golf instructors. But his name is Jeff Smith. He's the pro at TPC Summerlin. And hey, I mean, he's obviously doing a pretty good job. He's got right. he's got Aaron Wise. I don't know who else is in his stable. Well, I'm flying uh, down uh, next week actually to work. Okay, so, yeah, so. Uh, yeah. Hope and maybe Mike Francesa knows a little more about who else he's coaching. But um, yeah, incredible performance by Aaron Wise. Now, obviously, this Aaron Wise was the breakout star, but Trinity Forest was kind of the breakout star as a golf course. And we don't we don't usually talk that much about the golf course after an event, but certainly because it was its first time hosting a PGA tour event and because of how unique it was. Sure. It, it was what, you know, what did you think about the course? Both of you guys? Well, I, I, I thought it looked awesome. I thought it was really cool. I mean, um, I'm partial to courses like that, that introduce, you know, the ground game a lot mm-hmm. and kind mm-hmm. of have a lot of, um, yeah, you can't, look, well, you can't chip. So, I mean, you can't get the ball. in the air. <laughs> well, no, so, I'm, I'm yeah. definitely, if I'm going to win a major, I'm going to win <laughs> a British. I mean, everyone keeps saying, so, um, <laughs> it just have that kind of imagination. It's, uh, and so, yeah, I, maybe it's because it suits my eye, but uh, I just think it looks really cool. I love this, the backstory of sort of finding this piece of land and making it work in, in Dallas, of all places. And, and you know, it's interesting is that not everyone loved it, which, right, you know, right. automatically piques my interest even more mm-hmm. um, because PGA Tour players are sort of programmed to hit shots 138 yards, and it goes 138 yards, and that's it. And so to have uh, sort of a new you know a couple of other you know contributing factors to the to shot making is is makes it more interesting yeah i liked i liked it visually a lot um i think it's very rare that you see something that is like that striking i think a lot of golf courses you know were kind of conditioned to expect certain things um but this i mean when whenever they'd pan out you know and like seeing the course from above i thought was so visually appealing um, I wish I wish it hadn't rained at the end. Yeah. Like I was really curious to see how that course was going to play through the weekend if it had stayed firm and right, fast right. and windy. Um, but I, just the fact that we're even talking about it, I think, means that it was a success. Yeah, you mentioned the rain, and they'd even uh, not cut the fairways as tight as they usually do, which I don't know why they didn't, because I think it would have been cool to see the ball rolling a lot more and, and everything mm-hmm. else. But yeah, I, I liked it. Um, 
you know, I think it's one of those courses that, like like Sam said, I mean, you, if you guys you, you have guys talking about it, Matt Kuchar, you know, of course, was the one who came out and said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. And I, at all, kind of hinting he did not like it, and we might not see him back at the event. Who knows? But, you know, it's the same test for everyone. Um, you didn't hear guys saying it was unfair. No. I mean, it, which, which no. is good. You didn't, you know, as much as, like you said, you do have to worry about where, where the ball bounces and this and that, you didn't see crazy bounces. You just saw if you were long on a hole, you, you rolled – off the green and you had a tough shot or, you know, same thing if you, um, you know, off the tee were a little too aggressive, you might've rolled into a fairway bunker, but I thought it was amazing because you see these guys stats and they were all hitting like 90% of the fairways right? and mm-hmm. 90% of the greens even, but that didn't matter necessarily for the score because it's not just about hitting the fairway. It's about hitting a certain right. side of the fairway. Not so, to quote our boy, John Huggin, but yeah. John Huggin would be the guy who would say that, you know, pinching in fairways and making right. it penal to miss fairways isn't really that, right. isn't really, right. the, no, it's, right. it's all about angles and degrees. Angles. And angles. I mean, and, uh, you know, so that's, what's interesting to me too. It's like, it's not so much about, you know, hitting a, hitting a driver and, and holding on for your life and hoping it goes in the fairway. It's more about setting yourself up for the right way to attack. Yeah, no, angles is clearly the buzzword, buzzword of the moment, of right? the <laughs> moment yeah. in golf architecture. But, hey, it, it makes sense. I mean, you know, you could hit it, you could find the fairway and bomb it down and only have 100 yards in, but if, if the pin was on that side and you had no, no angle, you know, you were in a tough spot there. So, no, I enjoy it. It is funny, though, that they have a treeless golf course yeah. in Texas right. when it's 90 degrees every day. You know, and you already and have called, cra- crazy winds in Texas. It's called Trinity Forest. Right. Well, it's completely surrounded. <laughs> it is when they do the overhead. It is pretty cool. How it is completely surrounded by by the trees. But I just think that's amazing that you're out there, no shade, uh, yeah, no protection from high winds that we know. Te- you know, the Texas wind players. There are. It's just. It is amazing that it kind of worked because it just seems like it would not work. Um, speaking of not working, Jordan Spieth's putting. Uh, he ended up actually having a decent weekend. I think he climbed into the top 25, but he missed a few more short putts. Right. And when we say short, he literally missed a 10-inch putt. Yeah. What What is going on? Well, I mean, it's as someone who's missed many 10-inch <laughs> putts. That's why I asked yeah, you Yeah, they looked at me directly. <laughs> yeah, like, what's really, going on? Yeah. Um, Look, you know, it's fleeting. Obviously, there's a little bit of a psychosomatic thing going on when you start sort of second-guessing yourself over short putts. It become it sort of feeds off itself. So I think that's part of it. I also think that, you know, there was great expectation that he would be the guy to beat this week because it's home course, yep. and and uh, maybe that was sort of part of it as well. But, look, putting is one of those things that's just so fleeting. I mean, when everyone was saying that Spieth's sort of, uh, you know, what differentiates him is his putting. I mean, he's such a great putter. You know that never lasts. You know it might be it might over the balance of his career that might end up being the case, but you're still subject to these weeks and even months where it just sort of betrays you. Yeah. Well, I think that's really the key is that this has become not really a a weekend thing. Like this was this is a months thing, mm-hmm. and I think that by by him missing those really short putts, it kind of prompted everyone to take a little bit more serious look at his overall putting stats this year. And it, I mean, it really has not been very good and not very in character with Jordan's play over the last few seasons. And it makes you kind of question, you know, like what's going on. And if there is a problem, will he be able to fix it in time 
to defend the British. Yeah, you mentioned his stats. He is now 190th in strokes gained putting, which is obviously right near the bottom. He's even worse from the short putts. And I, I, there is a little bit of a misnomer with Spieth. He's never been a great short putter. Right. First of all, mm-hmm. all these guys are great short putters. Right. They all they all flash these streaks. They've made 100 straight from inside three. You know, but, but Spieth does miss from short range. He did it at the British last year in that front nine. He missed a few that let Kuchar back in. I mean, he was – I don't even know if it was – nerves necessarily he just does not make those putts he does that thing sometimes where he looks at the hole he doesn't you know people think that's kind of cool that's not cool I mean he he's not comfortable (laughs) with those putts where he is a great putter is on the longer range and that one year Sam mentions in 2015 he made like 25 percent of his 20 footers I mean that again now that's something you can't sustain but that's something where you know again at the British last year he he made that run he made the 50 footer he, he he makes more long putts than anybody but he misses right as many short putts as anybody not that I'm privy to what goes on inside his head but I, I have to imagine that the more you see your stats of being mm-hmm. you know so bad this year and seeing yourself miss you know 10 inch putts it suddenly becomes this thing that is in your head over the ball and like you mentioned if you if he's mixing up his routine you're suddenly going off of kind of uh, confidence and and what you want to have happen and there's just you're leaving yourself open to too many variables and so again it's like one of those things where success begets success in the other round mm-hmm. I think he gets back into a good rhythm it's suddenly going to be something he's not thinking about but right now he's obviously thinking about it yeah and I was going to say you know wow pros are just like us this week that he misses a 10 inch putt but when was the last time any of us actually putted a 10 inch putt oh, i think it was the last time i made a 10 inch putt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you can make those but you don't have to because we all just scoop them away i mean Very... I, it was a, literally a tapping um all right one guy whose putter was clearly working was a guy who admittedly i had never heard of before this week i'm sure none of us have if we're being honest here michael arnaud um, who gets in at the last minute as an alternate web.com tour event, shoots 27 under. Uh, not only does he flirt with 59, he flirts with 54, to be honest, one right. day. And then he flirted with 59 again. He wins by five shots the BMW Charity Pro-Am on the web.com tour. His first title. Uh, what? How does this happen? I know. It's amazing. You look at like, how much money he was making going into the right. year. Yes. And now he's on the brink of a PGA Tour. Oh, no, yeah, no. Unbelievable. Exactly. I mean, that's the, that's the appeal of the game. And, again, it's like one of those things where, you know, the, the depth, like we, we started talking about Aaron Wise and about how there's so many good players out there. Well, there's probably, uh, from an ability standpoint, there's probably, you know, 300 players who are within range of each other. And a lot of it comes down to confidence, where they are mentally. And here's a guy who, you know, obviously wasn't there and then just channels magic for one week, and maybe that's the turning point in his career. I think, yeah. And I mean, you can be super talented and sometimes you just have to get lucky. And that I think that's a lot of what happened for him. You know, last guy in the field and then suddenly he's winning by five. Like sometimes it just comes together. And this is just one of those like this is like a Disney movie playing out. You know, he's like made a hundred thousand dollars in the last seven years. And then all of a sudden he just like doubles that in one weekend and maybe he'll be on tour next year. I mean, it's, this is why, I mean, this is why we all write about golf, right? Like stories like this. Yeah. Adding to the fairy book aspect is he's 36 years old. So it's not like some young up and comer. He's 36. He's a journeyman. Um, you know, we talked about college golf before he attended Stephen F Austin and not as exactly a golf powerhouse, uh, yeah. yeah, what are they? The Lumberjacks. They're yeah. in the uh, NCAA tournament. Oh, nice. Ever in the the men's basketball, uh, but yeah, just just to do this coming out of nowhere, 
you know, again, we mentioned on Friday, he shot a 27 on the front nine with a bogey. Right. And the web.com <laughs> web. tweeted out, right? Yeah. We're just verifying, confirming these yeah, numbers, all right? Right. The web.com tweeted out, yeah, we're confirming, verifying these scores because if you looked, it was one of those things you thought it had like, to That's be obviously a mistake. A mistake, yeah. And, and it, again, he needed just a. He, you know, he did kind of choke, though, let's be honest. He, he just needed a par for a 26 to break the uh, web.com record. He made a bogey. And then amazingly, two days later, he shoots 28 on the same nine. So he had a 55 total on that front nine. Um, just just amazing stuff. Yeah, his best previous season, he only had 49 career web.com tour starts, but 75th on the money list in 2015. So, again, he basically doubled his career earnings in, in one day. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing, bless. amazing story. Uh, next up this week is the Fort Worth Invitational. Next up on the PGA Tour, I should say. Fort Worth Invitational, of course, better known as the Colonial. Um, had a variety of sponsors. It will have Charles Schwab as right. a sponsor starting next year. So this looked like um, we might lose this spot on the calendar, and, and which would have been unfortunate because obviously this is a very historic place, especially as me, a huge Ben Hogan of fan. Of course, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. This is uh, you know one of Hogan's spots. So luckily we get to keep this tournament and this course on the schedule. And, you know, to talk about that, actually, we, we brought in John Feinstein this week. He did a story for us recently about all the changes in the PGA Tour schedule for next year. And this being one of them, or we thought this would be one of them. It ended up not being. But right. Sam, what, you know, talk about John. Well, and, we uh, were talking just before yeah. we went on. So John Feinstein, of course, is now a GolfDigest.com contributor, writes a weekly uh, column for us, which is great. And the... The, the irony of it, of, of it all is that um, he's largely the reason, for better or worse, that I'm in the business I am because um, I was a, just a huge general sports fan growing up. Um, I love Seas on the Brink because I mm-hmm. went to Indiana University for a year. So I loved that book and I loved him. And then he wrote this book, A Good Walk Spoiled, about the PGA Tour. And I had you know a vague appreciation for the PGA Tour, but I don't think at that point I had nearly – an understanding or an appreciation of just the different personalities and the road they travel and how difficult it is to sustain a career on tour and mm-hmm. sort of all the mental hurdles. And, you know, in my mind, it was like a, a seminal book in sort of explaining the dynamics of professional golf, just like what Keeley was saying about why we all write about is all these stories. Well, it's like basically that book, not to put too fine a point on it, but it was like that book illustrated to me that everyone has a story that week. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's something yeah. at stake and it not it's not necessarily just the guy who's contending to win and it was a hugely influential book and i sort of became fascinated by by golf and golf writing and obviously the pga tour but obviously playing the game was a was a big part of it and so for everyone who who shakes their head at things that i write and do in the world of golf you can blame john feinstein because he's uh, a big reason behind it and i know you said the I, same thing yeah and i didn't know that you kind of had that story as well but I, I have my own john feinstein story and uh he, you know, I went to, I read A Good Walk Spoiled. It was, I really got into it, of course. It's an incredible book. It's a classic. And he was doing a talk at Wake Forest when I was a freshman. And my buddy and I went to the talk. He talked for about an hour. He was great. Uh, the only bad thing was he did go to Duke. Right. But, but other, well, other than that, we, mean the best we, thing yeah, about him, we right? let Is that slide. But he was great. Afterwards, we went up to him. We, we met him. He signed our books. And my buddy and I actually, that day, I swear, went to the uh, school newspaper office, and we both signed up Are for you the serious? school newspaper. Whoa. Swear. So literally, John Feinstein is the guy. 
And did I, you like go and like fill out an application? What did you do? No, you just went and said I'm interested, and they were like, okay, okay. And it wasn't like do you know how to spell? Yeah, right. no, it was. <laughs> it, 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 it honestly yeah. wasn't even that rigorous. I mean, they we were on if we wanted to be. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was not that. It was not that hard. But we we went and signed up, or not? You didn't actually sign up. We went and said we wanted to do it right right after this talk from John Feinstein. So. Very Amazing. inspirational, yeah. And then, you know, from there we did it for, we both, my buddy and I did it for a few years, and he, I don't know what he does now. He's now he's so, probably successful. He's, 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 you, exactly. Right? He's yeah. more successful than I am, I'm right. sure. But anyway, thank you, John, or maybe not thank you, but that, yes. that is why we're here. Anyway, so we both have great stories about John, and we heard some more great stories from John today uh, with our talk. Please have a listen. Okay, excellent. Joining us uh, from home in Maryland is the great John Feinstein. John, I hope I'm not buttering you up too much by using that description for you. Yeah, well, you're going to take a shot at the Islanders before we're done here, Sam, so that's fine. Oh, for sure. Multiple <laughs> shots, hopefully. So, uh, so John's here with Alex Myers and myself. John, a lot to talk about. One of the things that we um, you wrote about last week was the new PGA Tour schedule, which obviously a lot of moving parts still in play, but one thing we know for sure is that the PGA Championship would have been played uh, this past weekend, May 20th or something like that. So uh, give me your thoughts on that move and whether it's uh, a recipe for disaster or you feel like it's actually the right decision. Oh, no, I think it's the right decision, Sam, for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, it, it, it puts the four majors, you know, the Masters will come in April, the PGA in May, the U.S. Open in June, and then the Open Championship in July. So you'll have one major for each month rather than squeezing the last three into a period of nine weeks, which has been the situation. And, and I know there are people skeptical about playing the PGA in May because it might take away a couple of venues because it's too early in the year. Well, the fact is that no venue works in August, really. I mean, right. it may maybe works for the golf course, but the, the weather's always miserable uh, at that time of year, almost any anywhere in the country. Uh, the best-case scenario is you just get really hot, sunny weather. The worst-case scenario is you get hot, thunderstormy weather. And, and, you know, like at Baltusrol two years ago when all the leaders had to play 36 holes on Sunday and they barely got it in. So I, I think the move makes sense. I think moving the Players' Championship back to March uh, is, is also a good move. That's where it belongs. It, it's sort of, I, I know that Jay Monahan doesn't want to hear this, but it's kind of the perfect warm-up for the majors. And the main reason it got moved to May in the first place was, I guess it was about 12, 13 years ago, Greg Norman had to withdraw. And in his re press release, you know, saying that he couldn't play because he was hurt, Norman said how disappointed he was. He was a past champion. He loved playing the players. And, quote, it's always a perfect warm-up for the Masters, <laughs> at which point Tim Fincham's head exploded. Right. And they said, we've got to do something to keep it from being perceived that way. They moved it to May. I don't, it's never going to change its perception. The Players is a really good tournament. It's never going to be viewed by 99% of the golf community as a major championship, which it shouldn't be. And so playing it in March is the perfect time. So I think those two moves made sense. And then they kind of led to the rest of the schedule change, which is really built around getting the playoffs finished before football starts. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned not wanting to squeeze too many events and uh, majors in the same time, but there's so many events. It's now a year-round schedule. Are there too many events in general? 
Oh, no question, Alex. There are, but they're not going to go. As long as the tour can come up with title sponsors willing to put up the money, they're not going to cut down on the schedule because the players, for obvious reasons, want as many events as possible, uh, especially the quote-unquote rank-and-file, the guys who are playing every year to make the top 125 or the top 100. They want as many chances to play uh, as possible. And so uh, if the tour can get title sponsors to keep coming forward, and I have to say they've done an amazing job doing that. I mean, in, in 07 and 08, when the Bush economy was, was tanking, I, I thought, sure, they would lose tournaments, but in almost every case, they were able to find new sponsors. I mean, Buick went away, and they were able to find people to replace them. Remember, Buick was the title sponsor for four events once right. upon a time, four events a year. Uh, so as long as they can keep coming up with these title sponsors, as long as Quicken Loans is willing to step in and move to Detroit, they've got 3M on deck waiting if Houston can't find a, a title sponsor, they're going to keep playing all these tournaments. Yeah. John, one of the things you did mention was uh, Quicken Loans and D.C. might be one of the casualties of this new schedule. So in yep. your estimation, uh, what went wrong with that event? Well, I, I mean, really, bottom line, Sam, is Tiger Woods went wrong. Uh, when, when he, when they started the event in 07 to replace the International, uh, Tiger Woods was at the height of his, his popularity, his fame, and his game. And they, they, because he was Tiger Woods, Congressional, which had always kind of shied away from hosting PGA Tour events because it thinks of itself as a major venue, was willing to take the event on. And in 07, with the understanding that in 2010 and 11, it would go to Aronimink in Philadelphia because Congressional was hosting the U.S. Open in 2011. And all was good. You know, they got really good. If you go back and look at the fields the first couple of years, because it was Tiger Woods, because it was Congressional, um, they got great fields the first few years. Then came Tiger's accident and his fall from grace, and then he stopped winning majors. And then eventually he started getting hurt a lot. And AT&T pulled out as the title sponsor. They really had to hunt around to get Quicken Loans to jump in just a couple months before the 2014 event. And then, you know, Quicken Loans took on the title with, with the, the notion that, well, at least we know we'll have Tiger Woods every year. Well, except they haven't had Tiger Woods the last couple of years. He did play in 2015, and then Congressional didn't want to be involved with Tiger Woods anymore. So they said, once our contract is up in 2020, we want to try to get another U.S. Open, so you got to go away. So then they went to Robert Trent Jones. Nobody could get there because it's in the middle of nowhere. And last year they went to Avenel, which is actually a pretty good golf course. Although best described, I think, by Davis Love, who once said, Avenel's not a bad golf course unless you have to drive by Congressional to get there, <laughs> which you do. Uh, and the, the field last year was just got, it was it was basically a web.com tour event with Ricky Fowler entered because of his association with Quicken Loans. And I think that, that the, and Quicken Loans dropped out. Now what the tour has done, because Dan Gilbert, the owner of Quicken Loans, is a Detroit guy, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, he wants an event in Detroit. So they went to Gilbert and said, okay, we'll give you an event. I think it's going to be a Detroit country club, but you got to pay the, the money for one more year in Washington. So Quicken Loans' name will be back on it for this year, but after that, it's going to go away, and it's really a shame to not have an event in the nation's capital um, and in one of the bigger markets in the country. And, of course, it's really a shame because 
it's my favorite event on tour because it's two miles from my front door. <laughs> uh, obviously, the PGA and the players drawing most of the attention here, but you mentioned the FedEx Cup playoffs sliding up into August. Uh, kind of ahead of football schedule. They're also taking out the one of the four events. You know, what what does that say, I guess, about the playoffs that they're making such drastic changes to it? Well, I mean, first of all, Alex, the loss of the Boston event is, again, partly because of losing their title sponsor. Hmm. Uh, that's always the case on the tour. The title sponsor is the key. But uh, I think that the, the, the FedEx Cup playoffs have been a boon to the PGA Tour because they've kept the top players playing after the majors are over, which didn't used to be the case. In fact, it had gotten to the point where even though the money was huge for the tour championship first week in November, a lot of top guys, including Tiger Woods, including Phil Mickelson, didn't even bother to play. Uh, but by creating this, this uh, playoff system, even though the point system is, is a joke, uh, there's so much money in playing those four events, or at least three of them, because uh, sometimes guys will skip the first one if they know they're comfortably moving on to the next next stage, um, that... that uh, it, it's it's been a good thing overall because the guys do play. However, you're the sponsors. You want TV ratings. And if you try to compete with the NFL, even though the NFL's TV ratings have tanked a little bit, down 20% the last couple of years, uh, you still golf still can't compete with the NFL. So that's why they wanted to move it into August and move, making it into a three-week uh, event, so to speak, instead of five weeks, because remember they would always take a week off somewhere along the line, they can now get it finished before Labor Day and before football starts and then start up, start up with the fall events, which they don't expect to get TV ratings for anyway. Right. You know, the one golf event that can compete with football in the fall is Ryder Cup, and of course yeah. that was the subject of your most recent golf book. Um, give me, uh, you know, this is a Ryder Cup year. It's, you know, we're now four months away. Give me a sense over the course of reporting that book of something that is going on now in golfers' minds and, you know, uh, Ryder Cup, you know, Jim Furyk's mind that maybe the public doesn't have an appreciation for. Well, I, first of all, Jim Furyk and Thomas Bjorn are monitoring uh, the, the potential candidates for their teams uh, constantly at this point. I mean, there are certain guys. I mean, you know Rory McIlroy's playing for Europe. You know uh, Jordan Spieth and Dustin Johnson are playing for the United States. But then what they're, where they're really monitoring are where the four captains picks. And you'll see the captains trying to play practice rounds with guys. In the case of Europe, the captain can go to a tournament sponsor and say, I want to play the first two rounds with X so we can see him under pressure. That's what happened with Darren Clark and Thomas Peters uh, two years ago. Darren Clark wasn't sure. Uh, Thomas Peters was a little bit behind some of the other guys on, on the, in the point standings, but Clark had a feeling that he might want him on the team. So the last event uh, before he had to announce his captain's picks, he asked to play the first two rounds with Thomas Peters. I think Peters shot 62 the first day went on and, and, and won the tournament and knowing full well that he was basically being put through a tryout by Darren Clark and dealt with the pressure that way. And Clark selected him, and you remember, Peters went 4-1 and one right. in Hazeltine. So they're trying to get a, to know the guys who they maybe don't know that well, particularly the younger guys uh, who they haven't necessarily played with. There's, and there's a lot more uh, statistics 
uh, following involved now for captains than they used to be. Analytics are a part of golf now as much as they are a part of baseball or basketball. Uh, Tiger Wood, uh, excuse me, uh, Davis Love and uh, Darren Clark both worked with analytics companies. Right. Um, two years ago to make decisions on, in Davis's case, how to set up the golf course because the home team captain sets, basically sets it up, uh, and also what players uh, did better in match play, what play and, and more important, what players did better on, for example, par fives. Right. Because par fives are so crucial in better ball because you've got to make birdies on par fives. One of the reasons that Darren Clark wanted Thomas Peters on the team is because he was so good at making birdies on par fives because he's so long. So there's a lot of studying going on behind the scenes right now. And of course the players are all watching the standings, uh, the point standings. And some guys know that if they don't make the team on points, they're not going to make the team as a captain's pick. And then there are guys who are pretty sure that if they don't make the team on points, they'll make it as a captain's pick. Phil Mickelson will be a captain's pick (laughs) if he's not in the top eight for the U.S., which he is right now. But if he weren't, he would. Same thing, right? Same thing uh, with Patrick Reed. Now, Patrick Reed didn't feel confident two years ago that he'd get picked if he wasn't in the top eight. And you remember the last event before the top eight was, was determined two years ago. Um, was was the the first playoff tournament at, at Bethpage Black, and he won. So he went from hanging on to eighth place to right. I think third place in the standings by doing that and eliminated any suspense. Right, John, you've been doing this a long time, and I know you know you have a process for doing all these books. But I'm curious uh, when putting this book together, um, who, which of the guys were the easiest to deal with uh, and the most accessible? Who were the guys that you were kind of chasing until the end to to get them to talk to you? You know, uh, all of them, Sam, were really pretty good. Uh, I was in, a, in an advantageous position because I'd known Davis Love since I did a good walk spoiled. Right. And he was, in fact, good, a good walk spoiled starts with him on the 18th hole at the Belfry on the last day of the 1993 Ryder Cup. Right. So I was pretty sh- I, I knew I'd get great cooperation from Davis, and I still remember, and you know how he is, we sat down at the 2015 PGA, and we talked for about two hours, and when we finished, he, Davis said to me, well, I guess this is the first of many. Well, you can't ask for better than that right. Right. Uh, from, from a guy. And there were some of the younger guys I didn't know that well. I didn't know Jordan Spieth that well, because when I started the research the summer of 2015, he had just exploded as a superstar. And getting that first interview set up with him was a little bit difficult. He said he was willing to do it, but I had to deal through his agent because I didn't know him that well. And Jay Dancy was fine, by the way, um, to deal with. But when I sat down with Jordan for the first time, again, we spent a couple hours together. And when we were finished, I said, you know, I'm going to want to circle back to you. And he said, yeah, just take my cell phone. It's easier that way. You don't have to deal with Jay. Thank you. Sure, Jay. And the only person who ever who gave me a hard time at all was Ricky Fowler's agent. Um, Sam Weinman, because not Sam Weinman, not you. <laughs> uh, thank you. What so the much. hell is Sam's last name? McNaughton. Ricky's agent. Sam McNaughton. McNaughton. That's yeah. right. Yes, I, I block on it. <laughs> um, yeah. Just because Sam gives everybody a hard time, I think he goes home at night and and sits there and giggles to himself about what a hard time he gave a reporter that day. But once I sat down with Ricky, he was he was very good. Um, he's not as good an interview as some other guys, but he's a he's a real sweetheart and he tries to answer your questions and that's all you can ever ask of anybody. Did, how well did you get to know Patrick Reed? Because obviously you write about how 
his mm. own teammates did, don't even really know him at that event, even though we see right. him as Captain America and all this. But it seems like that's really the only week that he kind of connects with those other guys. Although that's changed, I think, Alex. Okay. I think after the 2014 Ryder Cup, when Phil Mickelson looked at him on Saturday night when he was kind of addressing each player individually and said, we need to know you better. Mm. Uh, I think Patrick opened up more uh, to, to other guys on the tour, and particularly the guys who'd been Ryder Cup teammates. I mean, he came to the tour with this rep because of what happened at Georgia and Augusta State and, you know, really wasn't eager to, to open himself up to people. And as he himself said, he'd, he'd walk on the range and put on his headphones and listen to the same song over and over and over again, um, and he became more open, I think, in the next two years. Guys will, told me that, that it wasn't the way it had been pre-2014. He was terrific with me. I, I, I have to say, I mean, I was kind of nervous about how open he might be, um, given all the stories about what had happened with him uh, during his college career, and it, it, it's funny because after he won the Masters, the day after, I dropped him a note like a million other people, I'm sure, did. Say, hey, congratulations, really happy for you, blah, blah. Didn't expect to hear back from him anytime soon. And within an hour, I got a note back, you know, saying thanks a lot. But then he wrote, thanks so much for taking the time to get to know me. Wow. wow. And I just thought that was really cool. And really, the person, as I said back to him, no, I should be thanking you because you were willing to give me the time and open yourself up to me the way you did. But that shows you that he gets a lot of things that maybe some other people don't get. Right. Well, it's such an interesting revelation in its own right because for for Reed, I think the biggest uphill battle is that people feel like they don't know what happened and he's not really willing to talk about it. And it sounds like he has uh, you know, a great appreciation for making sure that, that people understand the full story. And if that was the case, I'm just speaking as a reporter, as an editor, you, you kind of wish the guy would – would be more forthcoming about his story so that yeah. so that people would sort of, you know sort of see the full picture yeah because it really the only side that has sort of been told is his family side right, right. because they've been willing to talk to reporters and talk about the fact that you know it, 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 they were escorted off the golf course i think it was at a u.s open yeah at Pinehurst. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, and Patrick, like you said, has been very private about it, not wanting to kind of tell his side of it, and that's one of the things that that happens. I mean, we saw it with the Lucas Glover thing a couple of weeks ago. None of us knows what goes on behind closed doors right. um, in any family, and you know, I just finished this book. I'm playing quarterback in the NFL, and one of the guys I wanted to deal with was Aaron Rodgers. And I sat down and I had a meeting with him. And, and he, by the way, his agent at the time was Mark Steinberg. <laughs> and Actually, Mark, said, Mark, believe it or not, set up a meeting for me with Aaron. And uh, he, he clearly a very smart guy. Right. And he listened. And, and at, at one point he looked at me and he said, well, who else would you talk to? And I said, well, it'd be pretty much I'd be guided by you, your offensive coordinator, quarterback's coach, uh, Jordy Nelson, whomever it might be. And he said, okay, because if you talk to my family, you're not going to get anything but a bunch of lies. And I was like, whoa, because this was right after the New York Times story about his rift with his family. Right. And he, eventually he said no to the pro, to being involved in the project in any detail. And, and I really believe it was because of his concerns that his relationship with his family would inevitably be part of the story. Um, and so uh, the same thing I think is true with Patrick Reed in the sense that Clearly, Aaron Rodgers doesn't want to talk about it, 
and Patrick still doesn't want to talk about it. I think someday he will, um, but right, right now he doesn't want to, and that's his call. You know, the the Glover thing, you mentioned it, and I know um, that's something that you're actually working on as, on a story for us about kind of that incident, using it as a jumping-off point to talking about what we do and don't know about golfers and and right. one of the you know great misconceptions is that is that golfers live charmed lives because they right. get to play professional golf for a living so what does that incident knowing what little we do about it what does that tell you about that sort of um supposed scenario well it's just a reminder that uh, golfers and all professional athletes are like the rest of us. They have issues in their lives. Uh, and, and money doesn't wipe out issues. We all know that. And, and, and you know, they, there are certain things they want to keep private. And Lucas Glover, when he tweeted after the incident, said something about, I'm sure Krista will be cleared in this private matter, mm-hmm. except it's not a private matter. The minute that 911 call was made, it became a public matter. That's just the way it is. And, you know, the, the most glaring example of that in golf, of course, is, is Tiger Woods, who you might remember the Christmas before the accident. He, he, there was a photo on Tiger Woods' website of Tiger, his wife, his two children, and their dog. dog yeah. I mean, the ultimate family picture, right? And yet, behind closed doors, the story was a lot different than what they were putting out on the website. And I, I think there, there are all sorts of examples of that. There are, of course, examples of people dealing with illness that they want to deal with privately, which I think is understandable. I, I knew about Hillary Watson's cancer because of my relationship with Tom back in the fall. But I, I wasn't going to write about it or talk about it until and unless Tom felt Tom and Hillary felt comfortable with it, which they did this weekend with an old friend, Vahe Gregorian, from the Kansas City Star. Uh, David Faraday obviously knew about Tom's situation, Tom and Hillary's situation, because he's so close to them. Right. He wasn't going to go on NBC or Golf Channel and talk about it. So it really depends on how things that are private play out, whether they become public. Um, Paul Goidos, who dropped off the tour in 2004 to be with his two girls, then-teenage girls, when his wife Wendy um, was, was going in and out of rehab um, because she was a, a, a addicted to methamphetamines, an addiction that started because she was trying to fight off migraine headaches. It wasn't like she was joyriding or right, anything. Right, right. She was dealing with horrible pain. And Paul didn't talk about it, but a reporter called Wendy about it, and Wendy did talk about it. So then it became public, right. and that, that, that's the way things happen. And, and there are private things going on in all our lives that none of us would particularly want to see played out in public. Right. Uh, getting back to the Ryder Cup, I'm wondering, you know, a new venue this year, obviously, uh, just outside of Paris, uh, coming on the heels of, obviously, the much-talked-about crowds at uh, Hazeltine. I'm wondering mm-hmm. how you expect the crowds to be at this venue and looking ahead a few years, the Bethpage crowds, uh, is this something uh, troubling that we should be worried about? You know, all the, all the real problems in the Ryder Cup, Alex, I hate to say it, have taken place here. Mm. Okay. Uh, you go back to the war by the shore at Kiowa, you go back to Brookline. I mean, I remember at Brookline walking the last day with the Payne Stewart, Colin Montgomery match, and it was awful. Mm. the way they treated Colin Montgomery, to the point where we were walking from 9 green to 10 T, and there was this guy screaming one word at Colin over and over again. And it rhymes with bunt. <laughs> um, and, and I started to turn around to say something, because the guy was 
really bad. And, and before I could, there was a hand on my shoulder and it was pain. He said, I got this. And he had the guy taken out. And you might remember at the end of that match when Justin Leonard's putt had clinched the cup for the U.S., Payne and, and Colin got to the 18th hole even, and Colin had a 25-foot putt, birdie putt to win the match. And Payne walked over and told him to pick it up. And uh, he, later he said to me, you know, uh, after what Colin had been through, we'd already won the cup. I didn't care about my personal record. No way I was going to let him putt that. Hmm. And that was probably his last act on a, on, a, on an international stage, wow. as it tragically turned out. But and then and then we had some of these incidents that you mentioned at Hazeltine, uh, and and I, I witnessed some of them up close too. The uh, the guy with Rory McIlroy on Saturday afternoon, and all the fans getting on Danny Willett's family, mm-hmm. and it, it was a tiny percentage of the crowd overall but it only takes a tiny percentage it's like if you guys remember when when uh the john higgins the basketball referee got all these threats from kentucky fans yes. after they lost to north carolina in the elite eight two years ago well a friend of mine who's a kentucky fan said well it was only about three thousand people <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot and and, and so I believe that, look, there'll be some, some fans who will get drunk and get out of control uh, because behavior at the Ryder Cup is allowed to be different generally than behavior at other golf tournaments. But I think that the Europeans, the, the leadership, starting with Thomas Bjorn and the players, will make sure that it doesn't get out of control. And I know, I know some of the American players tried to do that as best they could at Hazeltine. At one point... Um, Henrik Stenson had to calm Jordan Spieth down because Jordan was so upset with the crowd because they were all screaming in the middle of Henrik and Justin Rose's backswings. Hmm. And, and he said, it's okay. It's okay to Jordan because you know, Jordan was trying to get the crowd calmed down. I, I don't think it will be as bad as it was at Hazeltine, but I, there are going to be moments. I mean, that's part of the Ryder Cup, unfortunately. One thing they should seriously consider doing is limiting beer sales. I don't care whether it's here or, or in Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it does speak to the, the the real question, and we've been talking about this for, for months and probably years, which is, you know, golf wants to grow. It wants to attract a, as broad an audience as possible. And in doing so, you're obviously going to bring in an element that isn't familiar with all the traditions of the game and how golf is supposed to be played. So what's the trade-off? I mean, you know, I guess it depends on who you ask, but at some level, you have to embrace that that's become part of the game's identity. Yeah, I don't know, Sam. I, I, I have mixed emotions about that. I remember when John Daly won the PGA and all these new quote-unquote fans started showing up. Uh, and I think that's where you, the man, are getting a hole started right. with, with, that, with that crowd back in the early 90s. And it was like, well, it's a new crowd. But the thing is, they're not really golf fans. A lot of the people who watch Tiger Woods, whether on television or in events, they're not golf fans. They're Tiger Woods fans. And, and, and there were John Daly fans, and they're probably Ryder Cup fans because you get to chant USA <laughs> or sing Ole, Ole, Ole. Right. And, and they're not going to be your long-term golf fans. I think what golf needs to do is a better job than it's doing with attracting younger people to the game. Right. I don't think the first tee has done nearly enough to get access for kids to golf courses. I mean, it, uh, Harold Varner who grew up not in a first tee program, but in, in a program at a Charlotte golf club where his dad paid $100 a summer so Harold could play Monday through Friday on the golf course, has said to me that he thinks that 
um, the first T is 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 basically basically childcare, right. and it's not getting people in as many people into golf as it should. And the game needs to be speeded up at all levels because we're, we live in a USA Today society. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a five paragraph story is too long for most people. And it, it, nobody wants to watch a five-and-a-half-hour round of golf, and that's what we're getting Thursdays and Fridays on the PGA Tour right now, and the tour keeps making excuses rather than doing something about it. No, that's an excellent point. Do you think any of these sort of tweaks that they're making on the schedule do anything to, to address just the, the overall popularity of the game? Not really. I mean, again, because they all come back to who's willing to put up the money. It's not about getting in, getting into different places where they haven't been so much. Um, although I, I think they're crazy if they don't have an event up in Minnesota, given how w- crazy people are for the game up there. I mean, we saw it at the Ryder Cup. We've seen it when they've hosted major championships. Even the senior event up there that 3M is sponsored has done extremely well. Golf has to ex- accept the fact that it's a niche sport, and you can grow the niche, but. Let's not be silly and say, oh, golf's going to compete with the NFL or the, the NBA or you know, college basketball. It's not, and there's nothing wrong with that. John, one other thing I want to ask you is in, in the, you're working on a book on the NFL. I guess it's almost done about NFL quarterbacks. Speaking kind of along the same lines, um, personality-wise, when you're, what do you notice as the biggest difference between professional golfers and athletes in other sports? I know it's a very broad question. So yeah, it is, and and I think the the difference is that uh, golf is the Ryder Cup aside, and I I will not put the President's Cup in the same sentence with the Ryder Cup, but the Ryder Cup aside, golf is so individual, right. and it's so even though the players now refer to themselves as we because of their quote unquote teams. Um, everything when you're a golfer, even if you have your your team around you, you're the crown jewel, and everybody else circles around you. You're the sun. Uh, whereas in, in in team sports, you've got to be get along with your teammates. You you they it doesn't matter if you're the big biggest star or if you're the 45th guy on an NFL team. It's Joe Flacco is one of the quarterbacks I dealt with, and his receivers this year sucked. I mean, they couldn't catch a pass most of the time. But he couldn't come in and say, yeah, I had two interceptions because I threw balls right in guys' hands and they bounced off him and were intercepted, which happened. He couldn't say that uh, because he's got to keep everybody in that locker room happy if he's going to succeed as the quarterback and the leader. Whereas in golf, it's all about you. Uh, One of the smartest comments anybody made to me when I was working on the first major was I was talking to Roy McIlroy about – his first Ryder Cup, and you might remember that when he first made the team and was asked about it, he said, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. It's a nice exhibition. I'm, you know, my real goal is to win majors, but I'm sure I'll have a good time. And he said he got to Wales in 2010 and knew after about 10 minutes that he was wrong that this was a huge deal, right. and this was not an exhibition. And, and he, he, as you know now, he's totally into the Ryder Cup. And when he was telling me this story, he said, you know, looking back on it, it was really a selfish thing to say. I'm an, I'm an only child. I was a prodigy as a kid. My whole life has been about me and about winning major championships. That's, that's what I was raised to do in my mind. And then he leaned back in his chair and he said, hmm, a golfer being selfish, that's got to be a first, right? <laughs> and, and you have to be selfish, though, to a large degree if you're going to succeed in golf, whereas in team sports, 
if you're going to succeed. You have to be willing to give up something of yourself because if you don't, the people around you won't respect you and won't want to, quote, unquote, play for you. When the quarterback steps in the huddle, the other ten guys have got to be willing to die for him if necessary. You know, when LeBron James takes the court, the other guys on that Cleveland Cavalier team have to be willing to do anything for him if they're going to succeed. And I think that's true in every team sport in different ways, but obviously in golf and in tennis, in tennis the other great individual sport, it's not true. John, in your research and writing for, the, for your new book, I wonder, is there a particular quarterback who you, you were surprised to learn so much about and who you have a greater respect for? And well, of this- I'll tell you what, Alex, I worked with five, very closely with five guys, okay. Flacco, Andrew Luck, uh, Alex Smith, Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's a great story. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harvard mm-hmm. grad, 250th pick in the draft, and he's now thrown for almost 27,000 yards in his mm-hmm. NFL career. Uh, and, and Doug Williams, because I needed an African-American voice. And I've known Doug since he was a rookie in Tampa. In fact, I went down to write a story on him because about 10 games into the season, my boss discovered that there was a, a black quarterback in Tampa. Um, and he sent me down to do a story because back then it was a story. Hmm. And I was in John McKay's press conference. He was the coach in Tampa the morning I was supposed to interview Doug. And he looked at me and said, who are you? And I said, my, my name's John Feinstein. I'm with the Washington Post. And he goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, I'm doing a story on Doug. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, you mean to tell me the paper of Woodward and Bernstein has just now discovered we have a black quarterback? <laughs> <laughs> so I'd known Doug for years and, and kind of lined him up because none of the current African-American stars were willing to, to work with me so closely. And Doug was just, I mean, I always knew he was a good guy, but he was just sensational because he's got that big southern accent. He's from Louisiana, and people miss how, just how smart he is. So all, of, all five of the guys I worked with closely were terrific, but Doug was a revelation, as you, as you were asking, Alex. And it, this obviously, this recent draft, so much was made of the big crop of quarterbacks. Yeah. You know, what, from what you've read and learned about, who do you think of that group uh, will kind of be the, the one to shine? Uh, you know, I, it, it, here's the thing, Alex. The, the scouts don't even know. Right. That's why <laughs> half the, the, the high picks, uh, high, high quarterbacks picked high, bomb out. Sure. I mean, Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf were considered pretty much equal right, right. in 1998. We yeah. all know how that worked. I mean, I throw Heath Shuler's name out at you. Mm-hmm. I throw uh, Jamarcus Russell's name out at you. I mean, the number of top five, top ten picks who have flamed out as quarterbacks is, is almost endless. Um, so uh, there were four guys in the top ten. Chances are two will succeed and two won't. Mm-hmm. The, the, the dark horse, and I'm not trying to, no pun intended, is Lamar Jackson, mm-hmm. who the Ravens took with the 32nd pick, who I think, again, I'm no expert, but I think has tremendous potential uh, as a quarterback if he's put in the right offense. And I can tell you for a fact that Joe Flacco wasn't thrilled when he was drafted. <laughs> I bet. Speaking of player personnel, do you want to do 20 minutes now about John Tavares on the Rangers next year? I don't wish to discuss Mr. Tavares <laughs> until he re-signs with the Islanders. And if he doesn't re-sign with the Islanders, he's dead to me, and you better never bring him up in my presence. If he doesn't sign with the Islanders, you might be, the Islanders might be dead too. All, what? What's that? I'm not at all emotional about that. Yeah, not at all. You're very rational. <laughs> very rational, yes. The Islanders are the only team left in my life besides Army and Navy football where my wife will hear me screaming at the television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, they have that ability to bring that out quite a bit. 
more than, more than yeah, most they've certainly yeah. brought it out the last 25 years yeah. while winning one playoff series exactly well listen john i know you're a busy man i really appreciate the time um and i just as this personal plug we're very fortunate that you're back uh writing for us on a regular basis so that's uh that's good news for us so um thanks again again when it, when is the uh the nfl book going to be out uh thanksgiving and it's got a clever title quarterback very good it's good <laughs> So awesome. I gotta go now because I've got this editor breathing down my neck for a column. All right, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> don't listen to him. Thanks, All right, John. Take care. Take care. See you, John. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks again to John Feinstein for joining us today and. We're going to finish off the show today with our awards, our weekly awards. So first, we start off most overblown headline, and that goes to the Trinity Home Course Advantage. We mentioned Jordan Spieth earlier, Bo Hostler also one of our big picks last week. Why is it that, you know, that was supposed to be an edge for these guys? What happened? Well, I, I remember what, what event it was when I talked to someone else who says, you know, the, the, the advantages of playing at a home course or near your home is countered by the disadvantages mm-hmm. of playing at home because there's added pressure, you have added considerations. Mm-hmm. You're also suddenly factoring in things that maybe you otherwise wouldn't, like you're playing a, a, a golf course where you know your sight lines are one way and then suddenly there's you know signage and bleachers and things like that that you never have to factor in. So I just think that it, you know, it can be an advantage in the sense that you know the golf course really well, but there's also a lot of other factors that sort of mess you up. And, you know, obviously we talked about speed putting. That's probably the biggest thing. But it's just it's just more complicated than we probably think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that we, everyone, us included, didn't really think about some of those negative things. Um, I think there's a lot of weird added pressure of, you know, more people than usual who you know coming out and watching you. Like stuff like that that mm-hmm. you just don't even consider just pops up when you're playing at your home course. And like you said, it's going to be set up differently than you've probably ever played it. Right. So, you know, the the advantage starts to really not be an advantage. Sure. Best one-day story goes to 93-year-old Ben Bender, who, by the way, that's a great name. Right. Phenomenal Bender, name. Makes a hole-in-one in what he says now, it's his first hole-in-one, right. in his last, his final round of his life. He's 93 years old. Well, Dropping I mean, the mic. That's the way. What else? Yeah. Unbelievable. Like, wh- that's I, I know that silently you're cursing that guy. I mean, let's just let's just have <sighs> it out right now. I knew you'd say that. Yeah. I actually am happy for this guy. Even though are I you though? Home- I am. No, I swear. Okay. No one. These other people make home ones. I, <laughs> yeah, I your your issue less. is not someone who's played golf all his life and gets a home one. Your your bigger issue is people who like stumble on a golf course for the first time yeah. and they, or they don't yeah. deserve it. Right, right, right. right. This guy's put in his dues. He's yeah, all right. years old. That's fair. He was a good golfer. It said he was down to a, a three handicap at one point. Okay. I mean, yeah. you know, he was due to get a home one. If right. he hadn't, it would have been, you know, home ones are extremely lucky. But if he hadn't, if he'd gone through his entire life without making a home one, very unlucky. So I'm happy for the guy. I know, Keely, you don't believe me, but I really am happy for Ben Bender. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy for him too, but I mean, I just really want my own hole in yeah. one at this point. Yeah, so none of us have one. No, no, I've. Sam, I've, you don't. 
I'm, I love the fact that you're surprised yeah. by that. Thank you. Um, well, no, because the people who I know again, don't like all the just, chops get yeah, holes in one. Exactly. Um, no, I was in a group with someone who had a hole in one. Um, if that counts for anything, you saw it. That doesn't count for anything. I've seen like five. Okay, what? whatever. I haven't seen any. I'm cursed. As, I'm so cursed. You couldn't even be on the same course as me and make a hole in one. Mm-hmm. I like given away all of my hole in one luck to other people. Mm-hmm. I've oh, seen some. Now I'll never get one. Not only so, just so you know, this is just so telling about my golf career not only do i not have a hole in one i don't have an eagle and my own the longest hold shot i ever made was 135 yards it was an eight iron and it was after sculling the first three shots so it was for par <laughs> oh god that's longer than a shot i've hold. yeah that's so amazing. so yeah. there you go yeah i have a friend who made a you know kevin harrigan made yes. a, like a ground ball hole in one in he's actually an okay golfer but he made a ground ball hole in one in yeah. high school match and another friend who can't break 100 made a hole one at Bethpage on right. the 14. Well, didn't 14 Harrington make one too? Oh, yeah. yeah he yeah. won a legit one at Rock Ridge. Yeah, like that a, was legit. From 175. Yeah, yeah that's legit. Yeah, that's legit. My Good biggest friend. fear is I make a hole in one on a second ball. We, that's, we, that's we, we've talked about this, right? Don't hit a second ball. Do not. What do you mean? Because you don't. Because it doesn't count. It'd be, I know, but what if you're just trying to work something out your swing? You're not thinking about a hole never in one. Never hit a second ball. That's never. the dumbest thing. Never. No, I never that's do my it. sister did never. it on a 185 yard par three. She puts it way right into mm-hmm. the hazard, re-tees, knocks it in the hole. I mean, if you have to like, tee and you're playing a match, then I would do it. But I would never, if I'm out by myself, I'd never say, "Oh, let me just drop another and hit it." I, at the very least, I would move up like 10 yards or something where it's not technically wouldn't be right. one because you would try to count it no i wouldn't i'm not that uh, much of a snake i would be a huge i would tell the story and we would we, we, we do a whole podcast yeah, episode about the <laughs> circumstances <laughs> behind my <laughs> quote hole in one all right celebration of the week and this is kind of a toss-up miguel angel jimenez wins his first senior major first major of any kind he does the sword into mm-hmm. the holster he's the man but then there's also tiger woods uh challenging the, the long drive champ, the female long drive champ at his uh, Vegas event and just bombing one, not even watching it, walking off and literally doing the drop the mic That's good. symbol. Which one was, was better? Well, hey, I mean, yeah, there's, there's it's participation prizes for everyone. It was, uh, <laughs> it was both very impressive. <laughs> what did you think? It was a, yeah, I mean, it was obviously two amazing moments in sports, um, but... <laughs> <laughs> for for me, it was Jimenez just because we because I feel like he hasn't been on the radar in yeah. so long. No one's talked about him at all, and then he just comes in with the you know holstering the sword. It was it was beautiful. I loved it. Yeah, I was amazed he hadn't. I forgot he hadn't won a senior major. Yes, no, he had a good too. run starting because yeah. he contends in regular. I think he won a European tour event in his fifties, maybe. I mean, or at least forty nine or so. I know he's he has the record. He's the oldest guy. Um, I st- yeah, I guess I go with him because the tiger, the drop, the mic is a little more played, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, still, it's again, Tiger Woods is just going out there wailing as hard as he can. <laughs> shots now, I, it's amazing. Is his What's doctor like cringing, like watching his back twerk like that? And I guess he beat. It was Troy Mullins. That's that's her name. She's a, a female long drive champ, but apparently Tiger, Tiger took her. Tiger, uh, he didn't back down. Um, all right. The dagger of the week, and this was a terrible story, and I really want to get Keeley's thoughts because she actually played competitive golf on, like, Samurai. Uh, these Oregon high school golfers who were disqualified from their, um, I guess it was, like, this their sectional yeah. tournament. This 12, is awful. Uh, four different groups of three 
players, uh, four groups of four players, were disqualified because they teed off from the wrong tee on the fifth hole. And where the problem was is that they were told to tee off from the blue markers, but the card said a different yardage. And when they got to that hole, they went from the yardage instead of the blue marker, which was 40 yards behind. So, right. Keely, you've played why in— is she, Why does she only have a lot of an opinion about well, this? No, you, just I human nature. Too, okay, fine. I okay, fine. Human nature. She's played in actual tournaments <laughs> okay, unlike us. Okay, fine. Uh, well, you know, other than club yeah. stuff. Keely, what, do you feel bad for these golfers, and have you ever heard of anything like this happening, and do you think this could have been rectified somehow? Um. Okay. Lots of questions in no, there. A lot of, I did throw a lot first, first of all, yes, I feel terrible for them. Um, mostly because from what I've heard is that they did try and do the right thing. Like when you're faced with a weird situation like that in any type of tournament, you have to find an official. Like that is just the first thing that you do. You just raise your hand like I need an official. And I, I can't remember if it was them or an assistant coach who was walking with them mm-hmm. went to – someone who looked like an official and asked what to do. And the guy said, go off of these markers. Um, I guess later it turned out he was just a volunteer. He wasn't Mm -hmm. actually an official. And that's, that's where it gets really messed up because if you're just a four caddy, you need to say, I'm a four caddy. I'm not an official. Let me go get one for you. You know, it was just, I don't know. It was just really unfortunate all around because the kids did notice something was off and they tried to get help from an authority figure and they were let down um but that being said i thought it was kind of weird to leave the markers i think i would trust the markers over the yardage right I, you know that was yeah. a little yeah so the thing was it was 172 yards was on the card, the card. and that's right. what the yardage was from the red tee right. and they just like oh well obviously it's gotta be this well they, oh, and then they asked play. the guy so it was just confusing i i, I yeah i feel bad for tournaments everyone. Yeah. where it's like the yardages have been wrong on scorecards right. that like i just don't go off of that okay I go off the so there you go so they probably should have known a little better I guess. Yeah, okay. though I, the other thing is they did ask someone right, who looked right. like to be an official. So, And I feel bad for that guy because there's no way he signed up for this. He's like, I'm going to go to the golf course and screw these <laughs> yeah. kids over today. That's my whole plan. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, and then Joel Beal uh, uh, did a story about it and talked to all the people involved. And it was just, you know, obviously my take on it was the guy gave them bad information thinking on something he assumed and then was probably embarrassed by it. And so he sort of changed his story. Yep. It's just ugly, um, you know. Yeah, he lied about it. He lied about it because, again, I think he yeah. just was like, what are you saying? Those? And it's just such a devastating outcome for these kids, which is, you know, the high school state tournament is probably the biggest thing right. of their athletic careers. Right. I, I, I know golf is so tough with the rules, but I still don't get why, just because, especially they're high school kids, you once they got to that fifth group and they realized it, just change it. Let the well, rest of the groups play for No, because that some team. groups – didn't some groups? No. no, but there was a reason. I forget what it was. I don't think I, there so. was I a reason why it would be an unfair there. advantage for the next group of kids. No, I think that they. I think they were like, nope, they played the wrong tee, and now you guys have the right info, and you're playing the right tee, and now and yeah. those guys are just screwed. Or, and I know this is totally out of whack, and Keely would probably kill me for saying this because again, <laughs> you didn't play, and you got to protect the field and all this, and this is where Sam would. Yeah, it's not fair. Let them go back and just play the hole again. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, no, I know you no. can't do it. I know, but just <laughs> logically, like, who cares? I mean, it's – I don't know. I, I, I feel bad for It's not that. a good look. It's the tough. whole thing's not a good look it's, all around. It's brutal. It was really tough. Um, another guy th- – our nugget of the week this week uh, revolves a guy who, you know, got a little bit of a dagger as well. Not quite as much because he made a nice check this week. But Adam Scott 
he uh, he had a great week at the Byron Nelson. Uh, finished T9. This is after a T11 at the players. He, so he's clearly on the upswing after switching back to that long putter. But he needed to get inside the top 60 to qualify for the U.S. Open. He is number 61, and the margin is like two hundredths of a point right. behind mm-hmm. Chesson Headley, who, good for him, got is getting into his first U.S. Open. Adam Scott still has a couple chances, we should add, mm-hmm. to get in, including this week coming up. But, um, the, sorry, I'll get to the nugget. The nugget is Adam Scott has 67 straight majors played in, and that is the second longest streak currently to only to Sergio Garcia at 75. So it's kind of a big deal. He's had a nice uh, nice run going. He has. And remember, he went through that period, and he's probably still in the midst of that period where he was kind of reducing his schedule so he could play yeah. more majors. So, I mean, one way to – I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? You play less to play more majors, but obviously playing – less also reduces your chances Chance of getting the points right. to get into the majors. Mm-hmm. So you know, he's living flying too close to the sun. Sometimes yeah. you got to plan accordingly. <laughs> That's so. true. That's true. But yeah. he is playing really well. I think, I don't know. I think he's going to be okay. He's, he's probably going to be okay. Um, also he's, he's probably never going to catch Sergio because Sergio already went through that awful. Well, they both gone through awful, awful mm-hmm. slumps and they've kept this streak alive, but neither of them are going to catch. Here's the other nuggets. Jack Nicholas holds the record. Any guesses how long the record streak is? Consecutive majors? Consecutive majors played in. He didn't really have any, like, significant injury periods the whole time. It's a long, it's a long streak. So I'm going to say it was 115. Okay. Keely? I that's think it's tw- under. That's like, that's like more than 27 years. So. Okay. That's I think it's under 100. I think it would be, like, at 94. You both underestimated the great Jack Nicholas. 146, Holy 36 and a half years straight. He played in every major, basically. I mean, that's – or no, he did. 36 years. Unreal uh, longevity there. So, anyway, but Adam Scott, will see. He's got a few more chances. Speaking of which, he plays this week at the Colonial, and his time we will wrap up with our picks um, for the Colonial, a.k.a. the Fort Worth Invitational. Um I'll, I'll start off then. I'll, I'll start off, and I'm going with Adam Scott. This is an event he's Ooh. won before. Uh, when he was number one in the world, this was actually the first event he played in after that, and he won that week. He's got good vibes. He knows how close he is. He still has a chance to get into the top 60. I think he has three more tournaments to do that. And, again, he's got this long putter working again. Um, he's not anchoring it. He's not anchoring it. Don't want the rumor mill to start swirling here. But he's he's clearly just feels more comfortable uh, putting that way, and it's resulted in a T11 and a T9 so far. So, Adam Scott is my pick. Gilly? Bold, bold. Pretty bold, um, right? I'm going to go with Spieth. I think mm, that... Wow. Bounce After, back. Yeah. yeah. I know. I just, I don't know. I feel like he's going to redeem himself and his putting. Like, I feel like when things like this happen to him, he comes back stronger the next week. So, <laughs> I could be wrong, but... He could. Yeah. yeah. Sam? Consider us skeptical, Gilly. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm skeptical, too. No, I mean, he does have a great record there, so yeah. that's it's not— He does, a, yeah. yeah. All right, fine. Um, none of us have talked about the reigning players champion, but I'm not going to pick Webb Simpson, but he is returning to play this week. I'm going to pick Patrick Cantley. I Cantley. thought about him. Yeah. Cantley, uh, another young star. We've already moved on to Aaron Wise, but obviously another guy who's got a ton of game and is still very much in the early part of his career. Uh, strong showings at Harbortown and— Sawgrass um, just has, you know, that's the type of golf course the Colonial is. Obviously, it's not a very long golf course. It's all about shot making, shaping the ball, all those things. And uh, so I'm going with Patrick Cantley. Yeah, you're right. He was like 
flavor of the month. Yeah, a few we've, ago. we've moved these, on. These were way yeah. Back. yeah, Patrick Cantley. Poor Patrick Cantley. He's yeah. been left in the dust by Aaron Wise. Uh, no, all right. Well, anyway, thanks again to uh, Keely and Sam for joining me, and thanks to John Feinstein. Uh, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already, and check back next week to see who our guest is. Maybe Aaron Wise. You never know. 